Hello, and welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection of humans and technology. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, and that is Nir Eyal, the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Hello, Nir. Hi. And, of course, as always, I have uh, Susan Weinshank. Hello, Susan. Hello. And I am Guthrie. So, today, uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of fun stuff, like we always do. Um, but especially because we have Nir on, we're going to talk about persuasion. So, uh, both kind of Susan and Nir, I would say, are... I don't want to... I don't know if... Yeah, you guys are both experts on persuasion. I think I can say that with confidence. Thanks. So, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you could have called us a lot of other things. So I'll take it. That's fine. Yeah, I'm going to go uh, <laughs> supreme experts in their field. No one is better. Um, so I think so. Uh, persuasion. And uh, just, just so the audience knows, a little bit before we went live, uh, you know, we were just asking kind of if they had anything to talk about. And I was told that they could actually talk for hours and hours and hours uh, just on this topic. So hopefully we can cut it down into like 50 minutes. You know what's really interesting too um, about, you know, because usually when I'm talking to other people about this stuff or like we had another guest speaker on and we had a lot in common, but you know, they kind of had their area of expertise and I had mine. But when I, I was just uh, rereading your book near and I felt like we were, we talk and, and think about the same things, but we use really different, a really different system mm. of knowledge about it. So it's almost like I have to translate. Like, I feel like I'm translating a foreign language, you know, it's like, okay, He's talking about tribe, and I call that, you know, like I had all these different phrases, and I just found it so interesting that we read the same research and studied the same stuff and then came up with a slightly different, pretty different system. Right, right. Well, I think I think some of it is trying to translate uh, some very old, established, really good research into a language that that folks can absorb. Uh, that was my big challenge, in that there was so much out there uh, yeah. that I wanted to help product managers, product designers use. Uh, and my big problem was, God, there's just so much, right? How do we how do we boil the ocean down to something that that people can actually uh, absorb? And uh, that's that. Sometimes I had to. You know, take academic speak and turn it into something that people hopefully could could uh, could absorb. So, Nir, why don't you just uh, tell the audience just a little bit about you? Mm-hmm. If they're not familiar with you and your work. Sure. And your your book, Hooked. Yeah. So which everyone um, should purchase. Uh, we do <laughs> lots of product placement, Nir. So if there's anything you need to plug, if it comes, you just yeah. Go, actually, they, you do. If before we even start talking about the book, you need to. If you don't have the book. Just go get the book because oh. uh, it's it's great. I really yeah. So tell us a little bit about about who you are and what you're doing, and then if you would tell us just like you have this wonderful system in the book. You know, you have the four pieces. You know, maybe mm-hmm. just say a few words. Sure. About that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to start, I, I'm such a huge fan of your work, and I was. I, at my last company, I read your work and I applied much of that. And so, uh, you know, I have a lot to thank you for in terms of, of uh, inspiring me down this path of, of exploring consumer psychology and user behavior. So um, thank you for, for that. Um, and I'm yeah. glad, see, Guthrie, I gave him uh, 20 bucks before we started. <laughs> <laughs> he no, he, huge debt of gratitude. I mean, you've, you've, you've done so much for the whole industry in terms of, of helping us all understand how our users think and, and, and what makes them do the things they do. Um, I'm looking at, uh, I have all your books here on my bookshelf that I'm looking at right now. So they, they, they were cool. incredibly helpful over the years. And where I applied them was at my last company was at the intersection of gaming and advertising. And uh, I spent a lot of time in these two industries that, you know, run off of persuasion. You know, advertisers don't spend all that money for their health and game designers, man, you know, there's no industry that understands how to change human behavior better than than the gaming industry. And at the intersection of those two industries, I I learned a bunch. Uh, But what I found was that people would apply these techniques without really understanding why they worked. They just kept doing what their competition was doing or what they had done before that worked. Uh, and then, so when that company was acquired, the last company I, I helped uh, found, I had some time on my hands and I really you know, was fascinated by this field and, and was looking to figure out how I could 
um, uh, explore more specifically about habits. Uh, that was really my uh, my fascination. I read Charles Duhigg's book, Power of Habit, and mm-hmm. loved the book. It was it was really well told, uh, and you know, boiled down some 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 of this uh, research into a, into a really fun read. My problem after reading the book was that you know I, I was trying to figure out okay, but what do I do with this? How do I build for habit? And so what I wanted to do was to to distill down what I had learned uh, at my previous company uh, and some of this great habit research out there into kind of a how-to guide because I, I had this hypothesis that as the the screen sh- size shrinks, that as we go from desktop to laptop to mobile and now to wearable uh, habits become more important because there's just less real estate to trigger people to do things. And so, you know, if you're not, there's, there's some amazing data out there around how important it is to be on the home screen of, of a phone, for example, that, uh, you know, if you're not on the home screen, you, you basically don't exist. More than that, it's really only a few apps on the home screen that even matter. So if you're not the kind of product that's used with little or no conscious thought out of habit, uh, it's very difficult to make it in a world where the, the the screens keep shrinking and eventually disappear. Right now, we're we're moving into the uh, the, the voice activated interface with Alexa and Siri, and um, I think that's only going to continue to be the case. That you've got to be top of mind. Uh, you have to be the first to mind solution, or it's very very difficult for people to remember to use your product. So, given that hypothesis, given that thesis, I thought I was going to start another company. Um, but then the more I got into this research around how to design for habits, I, I kind of you know, started blogging and found this elegant model that was helpful to me in evaluating businesses that I would might want to start and eventually invest in these different companies. And so I just started blogging about it. And then the blogging turned into a course at, at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business at the design school there. Uh, and then that became, from that course, became this book. And yeah, I, so, love, I love the way... You, Guthrie, I love the way he just throws out. Yeah, I blogged, and then it turned into a course at Stanford. There were probably I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's usually few... how it works, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's how it worked for me. You know, I blogged, and then I uh, suddenly I was at Stanford teaching. Um, <laughs> well, the way that happened was so I, I I went to Stanford for my MBA, and uh, a marketing professor that I I, I got very close to there uh, emailed me a few years after I started blogging and said, "Hey, I've been reading your blog. I really like it." why don't we do a course together? Oh. And so that's how that relationship happened. And then from that, uh, I went from the business school over to the design school uh, where, where I've been teaching about once a year now. Okay. Yeah. So, so talk about the, um, you have this in, in the book, you draw a circle. Um, or is it a square? But you, you, put, it, you put a circle through, you show the path through. Right, right, the, the hook model. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You, you know, give us the... Uh, Three-minute version of the hook model. Sure. So the the pattern that I, I saw repeated in these habit-forming products, when you think about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and WhatsApp and Slack, the the the, the pattern that I saw repeated time and time again is uh, this four-step process I call the hook model, uh, which boils down into a trigger, and there are two types of triggers: external triggers and internal triggers. Then the action phase of the hook, which is all about the simplest behavior the user does in anticipation of a reward. Then the reward itself, uh, and not only is it just a reward, not only are you giving the user what they want, but you're also uh, you, you implementing what's called a variable reward, uh, either to increase the variability or to take a situation that's inherently variable and give the user greater autonomy and control over something that's already variable. And then finally, the investment phase, and this is critical, uh, this is something I found in all these products that I studied, was that these products always get better with use by asking for an investment after the reward. So either by collecting data, accruing followers, uh, reputation scores, uh, contributing content, things that make the product better and better with use, and that's really different. I mean, that's really uh, a, a sea change when it comes to, if you consider products offline, until now, have had a really tough time uh, changing quickly, right? When if you think about manufactured goods, right, in industrial economies, when you build something, uh, it rolls down the production line, and then to change it takes years to retool it. Well, the products that we use online today, uh, all of these things are are adapting to us, right? They're perfectly contingent. As we use them, they change for us, and we change for them. Uh, and so that's that's a really big deal because that means that our products get better and better and better the more we use them. 
Uh, and so that's that critical investment phase that does what I call stores value, it gets better with use, and it loads the next trigger. So for example, when you uh, post something to Facebook or you follow somebody on Twitter or you like something or pin something on Pinterest, all of those things give the company a reason, a good reason, to reach back out to you with an external trigger, some kind of prompt to action, telling you to come back and use the product again and of course path, pass through the four steps of the hook so that over time, eventually, by passing through these four steps of the hook, they don't need any external triggers at all. Right? If you noticed, you, you, you never see a commercial for Snapchat on television, even though it's valued at a $15 billion company. You, you know, you, there was no Super Bowl ads for Twitter. There was no, you know, they don't spend a lot of money on, on advertising like companies of their size usually do because it's not, they don't trigger us through these external triggers after a while. What they rely upon are internal triggers, which are these typically emotions, negative emotion. They cater to these itches. Uh, in our day-to-day -day life that with little or no conscious thought, we turn to these products to alleviate that itch. So if we're bored, we check YouTube or Reddit or the news. If we're uh, unsure about something, we Google it. And if we're bored or, or, or lonely, I should say, we're on Facebook with little or no conscious thought. And so that's the ultimate goal of these habit-forming products is to attach to these internal triggers. So Nir, can you... Um just give an example of the hook model, a practical example for our users. Sure, listeners. yeah. Yeah, so let's take, uh, you know, Facebook just two days ago reported their quarterly numbers. They blew Boom. it out of the water, yeah. and, and that, so let, that's just top of mind. Let's do Facebook. So Facebook's external triggers would be the notifications, the emails. Those are triggers that tell you what to do next. That's an external trigger. The action is to open the app or click on the link in the website and start scrolling through the newsfeed. That's the action, very, very simple action to get a reward. The reward is, is, is this uh, you know, reward of the tribe. It's a social reward that comes from scrolling and scrolling through your newsfeed. And of course, it's variable, right? What videos might I see? What are the comments going to say? How many likes does something get? It's basically an online slot machine in this feed mechanic. And then finally, the investment phase is every time you, uh, you, you post something, you like something, you comment on something, you, you follow or uh, friend somebody, all of these things are forms of investment that make the product better with use. They customize the product for you. So if you were to log into my Facebook account, it actually wouldn't be very interesting for you because it's all been customized based on my data. And it loads the next trigger to prompt me to action in the future so that when someone does something uh, regarding something I've, I've posted to Facebook or someone I've friended on Facebook, now I have this new external trigger which prompts me through the hook once again until eventually, uh, I begin to associate the use of Facebook with anytime I'm feeling lonely or seeking connection or boredom, these negative valence states that prompt me to use the product even without an external trigger. And that's how the habit's formed. Yeah, I mean, one of the, it's, it's such a great model. And, um, uh, you know, he's making, you're, you're making it sound like, you know, hey, really simple, makes a lot of sense. But in the book, of course, you've, you've covered pretty much the entire field of psychology <laughs> you know it's like uh which wow. is what i felt you know i have the book how to get people to do stuff in which i cover and i have seven drivers and that was what was so interesting for me was mapping um when i when i went and reread it you know i'm mapping my seven drivers to to your your process and all the seven drivers i have are in your mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know your model but like i said in in just kind of a different and interesting way um, so there's a, I mean, it, it is simple in a way, but in, on the other hand, you know, it's got this whole body of behavioral science and behavioral economics and psychology, social psychology and, you know, all of that is, is built in there. I, I have a question for you though. Yeah. You know, we've got, you know, we can see like you, and, and in the book you talk about, you know, I mean, you give great examples about, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, um, and all these apps, you know, we, a lot of us know about and you know the 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 you were just describing about Facebook and there's a, a number of apps that are doing this very well but how I mean my sense is tell me if this is wrong or right mm -hmm. my sense is that most of these apps kind of got there by trial and error like they yeah, yeah. you know they they didn't you know sit down and say okay you know here's what we'll do so do you think, I mean, but have you had experience with, you know, have you been consulting with companies or with the own companies you've had where you've actually 
sat down from the beginning and said, let's map out how we're going to yeah, do the yeah. four pieces. So you're, you're absolutely right the, that these uh, products and services didn't use the hook model because the hook model didn't exist back right. then. Uh, but I think the, the, so two things there. One, I used a technique that Dan Ariely calls advanced hindsight, right? And where I was looking for <laughs> yeah. patterns in these companies to try and figure out what I could learn. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, at the social science, we can't do this kind of stuff with petri dishes to figure out, hey, you know, let's do a, an A-B test. If Facebook used this technique versus didn't use this technique, what would have happened? Although I think when you look at Facebook's competitors that didn't make it, you can actually see where, the, mm -hmm. where their hooks were deficient. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, after I did that analysis of these companies trying to figure out why they worked and why others didn't, um, after it was codified, after I actually put it down in, in print, it, it's been really wonderful to see how companies have actually used it from the from the get go. Uh, great example, probably the best example, is um, uh, back in in 2012. Uh, I got an email from this kid who was working at a, at a company that he was just you know he was okay with. He wasn't crazy about it, and he's kind of bored with his job. And he emails me and says, "Hey, look." Um, I put you on my list of 13 people I want to meet in 2013. And there were all these, you know, tech luminaries like uh, Eric Reese and Steve Blank and all these people in, in like, you know, famous people in, in, in tech. And, and I was on his list. And I said, you know, look, I, I, I live here. <laughs> Let's just go have a burger together. And so we sat down together and his name was Ryan Hoover. And he said, look, I really like your writing. I've read it on TechCrunch and I've seen you around and I really like what you're working on. How can I help you? I have some extra time on my hands. I'm a little bored. What can I do to help? And I said, look, you know, I've been writing, I've been blogging now for a couple of years, and some of my readers are asking me for a book. They want something they can share with their teams. Can you take my blog posts, put them in a Google Doc, and help me edit them into something that's kind of cohesive for, like, you know, maybe like a 15-page PDF? Well, I didn't realize how many articles I had written, and so when he was done, we had a 150-page book, and he helped me. He helped me figure out, hey, here's, you know, here's the holes. You should write an article about this, or you know, there's a uh -huh. there's a gap here and there. And so um, after this project was done, uh, Ryan uses the hook model and comes to me and says, look, I have an idea for how to use the hook model to build this product I want to I work on called Product Hunt. And Product Hunt today is, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley darling is doing unbelievably well. Just that's six so, point, that's right. so funny. You know, just about, I don't know, Guffrey, when was it? Like maybe a month or two ago? Um, one of my books made it to the top of Product Hunt. So oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Funny. Yeah, yeah. So you know, they just raised six point two million dollars from Andreessen Horowitz, and I, of course, invested as soon as Ryan said he wanted to start the company. And I didn't care what he was doing if he knew if he knew the hook model, yeah. and if it was Ryan, I'm I was in. Uh, and so that's, that's a great example because we worked great. on the book together, yeah, and nobody knows the hook model second to me better than Ryan. And yeah. there's been other companies. Um, I invested in a company uh, that was just in the New York Times. Uh, uh, that's an education company uh, called Kahoot. Uh, that uh, that one third—I couldn't believe the statistic—one third of American students between first and fifth grade are using this product. It's doing unbelievably well. Again, designed with the Hook model. Another company, Seven Cups, is a, a Y Combinator company that uh, services the psychotherapy market. Uh, started by a guy by the name of Glenn Moriarty, who was a psychotherapist, and you know found that too many people weren't getting therapy because it was hard. Right? It's hard to get therapy. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. It's time-consuming. There's social stigma. So he builds this amazing app that with one click of a button, so the internal trigger is loneliness, seeking connection. When, you, when you're feeling down, you open the app. With one click, you're instantly connected to somebody for free. It doesn't cost a dime. Uh, the variable reward is that it's a social reward, right? Rewards of the tribe around this other person that's trained to, to, to help you. And then the investment, and here's where it gets really interesting, is that the more you are a listener through this, uh, or sorry, the more you are listened to through this app, you actually have the opportunity to be trained as a listener yourself. That becomes mm -hmm. the investment in the product. And the, it's amazing. They just released this uh, peer-reviewed study that found that using seven cups as a listener is as effective as traditional psychotherapy. It's really amazing, and so that's an example of how we can use these hooks—not just for you know these frivolous games and, and and silly apps, but how we can actually do good. We can help people improve their lives by helping them build these healthy habits. So you're putting together a um, a uh, like a mutual fund, right? Uh, made up of companies who are who've all applied hook, right? 
I yeah. wish. And, <laughs> I, and then we, I, then we can invest yeah. in that mutual fund, right? I should. I mean, I personally invest in these companies, but maybe I should start a, a yeah, fund for everyone please, else. Yeah, would you please? Because I would like to. Uh, yeah, we should. Let's do it. it. <laughs> so, all right, let's take a, you, now you mentioned, you know, instead of doing this, you know, just for, just for kind of silly apps to, to help with our boredom, you, you said, okay, you know, some of these apps are doing good for people. So let, I want to talk. Oh, I can give you an example. Yeah. Farmville. Yes. He, and Nir talks about huh. Farmville huh. in his, in his uh, Poor book. Farmville. Yeah. <laughs> well, and poor Farmville. So Nir, you talk about the you talk about the you know problem per se mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right with farmville and and why it didn't last yeah yeah it's a great question i get that question all the time of you know look smarty pants if uh variable <laughs> reward what happened right you you know didn't farmville have a good enough hook and uh, farmville did have a great hook for a while uh you know if, it was the fastest growing game in history for a while zynga at one point was worth 10 billion dollars now it's worth a little less than a billion so it lost you know over 90 percent of its value what happened well i'll tell you exactly what happened if you think if you remember the history of zynga the the makers of farmville they they put out farmville unbelievable hit and then the next hit after farmville was i think it was cityville and then Frontierville, and then Chefville, and then the nextville, and the nextville, and users started to figure out that it was just the same game again and again and again. And when it comes down to those variable rewards, it's all about being new and novel. And what users figured out was that what, what was once variable and fun became predictable and mundane. And as soon as that hook lost the variable reward, there wasn't any reason to stick around. So that's an example of how the hook kind of disappeared, a good hook disappeared out of that product uh, because they couldn't keep up that variability. They just, you know, they kind of got lazy, started replicating the same exact formula again and again and again and, and couldn't adapt to something uh, else. They couldn't change the, the format. And we've seen this time and time again, right? For a while, everybody was playing Flappy Birds and before that, Super Mario Brothers and Pac-Man. And the reason we don't keep playing those experiences is because they are examples of what I call finite variability experiences that the more we engage with them, the more predictable they become. Uh, and this is, you know, we, we see this in news. Uh, we see this in uh, uh, books and movies. You know, we watch a movie, even if it's a great film, we don't leave the theater and then come right back around, buy another ticket and watch the movie again because we know what's going to happen. The variability is gone. We understand the happy ending, how it concludes and how everything is uh, is tied in, in, a nice, uh, in a nice bow at the end of the movie. And that's it, you know, so... And you yeah. you talk and you talk in the book about you know one way to to kind of stop um, avoid that problem, mm -hmm. for instance, if you're if you have a game if you're a game maker, is when it's a game that is played with other people, right? It, it's kind of constantly introducing some variability because you the, people the other people yeah they're not always going to do exactly the same thing and you're playing right. a different person and a different person. Well, exactly, exactly. So that's infinite variability. These products like, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about social networks and LinkedIn and these products where information about our friends is much more variable. They're going on vacations. They're posting interesting articles. They're giving us pictures of their pugs. You know, there's much more variability involved with this social reward as opposed to just uh, a quest we re reward. And when you think about really great video games that have lasted the test of time, when you think of World of Warcraft, yeah. World of Warcraft is not about the game. Right? It's not about slaying some evil monster. It's about your guild. It's about playing with other people who you care about together as a team. That's a much more long-lasting experience. Very. So there's one... I, I like to ask you a question because yeah. it ties together Farmville, Facebook, and <laughs> World of Warcraft. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of people who uh, played Farmville... Uh -huh. been on Facebook, and also played World of Warcraft. Uh -huh. I know a lot of people who have quit Farmville, quit Facebook, and quit World of Warcraft. And what the same thing was told to me every single time was that it was addictive. Mm -hmm. um, so in the case of Farmville, and I did this for, you know, I don't know, a month. I think everyone did, uh, right? Like, I was doing it, yeah. and I was like, yeah. this is so, I like, this is, like, so addicting. This Too is a waste much. of time. I can't do it. Okay. Right. So... Um, and, and so they, they, they like, you know, they have to quit, like it's a drug. Right. Okay. 
Facebook. I know a lot of people, especially my age, who have left Facebook. I've been told by my friends uh, that they start scrolling Mm -hmm. down the feed and they literally can't stop themselves. Yeah. So they purposely do not go on Facebook because it's at least 15 minutes or more and they just can't stop. Right. Um, And so I know a number of people who have just deleted Facebook and part of that was because of the time. Part of it, but it was also a mix of you know privacy and blah blah blah. But a lot of it was because of the time, and then World of Warcraft. I know um, a number of people who played for years mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. then quit because yeah. like the the to be in a guild requires you know you're t- four hours a day and it's it's very demanding and they just couldn't they couldn't keep up with life. Mm-hmm. So in all these cases. These you have these ridiculously successful products, mm-hmm. um, and don't forget, you know, Farmville did have social interaction at some mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. but there's a line, just like kind of gambling, where people realize it's a problem and then they stop, and some yeah. people don't; they're not able to. But there's right. like a level of addictiveness. Yeah. So what? Do you have any thoughts on it? Is there is there is this a is it a curve? We're on uh, on one side of the curve. It's not um, it's not rewarding enough. It's not it, it. And on the other side of the curve, it's so rewarding. People have to make a conscious decision to to stop participating. Yeah. So, is there a sweet so this spot? is this is music to my ears. Okay. I love that because uh, one of the questions that I oftentimes get, uh, particularly for people who haven't read the book is aren't you teaching people how to addict other people? And (laughs) uh, that's a dead giveaway that someone hasn't read the book because I talk about in the book how there's a difference between an addiction and a habit, that the clinical definition of an addiction is a consistent, I'm sorry, a persistent dependency on a behavior or substance that hurts the user. So it's something we want to stop doing but can't doing. And it can't stop doing. A habit, on the other hand, is simply a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. And unlike ha- addictions, which are always bad, we have habits that are either good or bad. And I really believe that we can use these habits for good, that we can help people live better lives through their technology products by forming these healthy habits. And in fact, you know, I just gave you some of these examples of mm-hmm. companies I've invested in that I think really do uh, improve our lives. And, the, and look, to put this in perspective, the real problem is not that a few companies like Facebook or Zingo or, or uh, World of Warcraft, that they figured out how to hook people. The real problem is that that's too small, that too few companies have figured out how to hook people. That in fact, when you think about how difficult it is to get anything done with a government agency <laughs> or with a local business, I mean, God, I wanna tear my hair out trying to use websites for people who you know, want to interact with their customers, want to help people do things they want to do, but for lack of good design, these products are awful, right? They don't suck us in, they just suck. So that's a problem, and that's the, that's the big problem here is that far too many companies don't utilize this psychology of human behavior to make their products better. However, there are some products out there, as you mentioned, that do kind of seem to, to, to suck people in to the point where it's difficult to stop using them, but my answer to this question of, well, aren't you teaching people how to uh, addict other folks, is that for the vast majority of people, the vast majority, mm-hmm. you know, where the stats are telling us between 95 to 99% of people do exactly what you did. They use it for a while, they enjoy it, and then they say, you know what, enough, too much. This isn't helping me do the things I really want to do in life, and they uninstall, they just stop. So that's a really important lesson in two regards. One, as the app maker, you have an incentive to not burn people out, to not make your, your products so over-the-top uh, life-sucking that, that people can't continue to use them. That's one thing, right, that we have to care about the user's time and not hurt the user by, by trying to you know, conquer every spare minute. And two is that, look, human beings are adaptable. We're going to be all right. This technology is not going to turn us into techno-zombies. Uh, the fear around this technology is, is, you know, is scripted. It happens every time there's a new technology, uh, particularly when it's the young people who are using these video games <laughs> that are rotting their brains. Really, what happens time and time again is that we adapt. People figure out, hey, you know what? This isn't helping me. I'm using this too much. I just did this with Snapchat. I got really into Snapchat for a few weeks, and then I started, said to myself, well, this is becoming a burden. I feel you know, preoccupied with what I should be posting on Snapchat. 
and I stopped. I, I realized it's just not serving me, and I don't use it as much as, as I was back then. Uh, and I think that that's what most people do. We adapt when we are harmed through the use of a product. Now, some people, however, can't adapt. Some yeah. people... Well, what about what about the woman who uh, that was in the news today who um, is suing? Yeah, for, Snapchat because for... she uh, it, for they had that they have the feature where it'll tell you how fast you're moving what where, when you take a picture. Right, right. Video. I just saw that. Yeah. And she had a uh, an accident. Um, car accident. Car accident while. While seeing, you know, if it knew how fast she was going, you know what? Yeah. And but and so she's suing Chat Snapchat. But what I find really interesting is that mm -hmm. as she's on the stretcher, mm -hmm. <laughs> she's she does a selfie on Snapchat. I just saw that. Yeah, that says "lucky to be alive" with her in a stretcher. <laughs> and then she's going to sue Snapchat, but she's after the accident. She's right after the accident she's using snapchat right so you, right you gotta really wonder what's what's going on and by the <laughs> way she was going 107 miles per hour uh as as stated in the lawsuit so i think this is you know this is this is hysteria and this this happens every time there's some new technology that the old people fear that the young people are melting their brains over uh, and this has happened with the the telegraph it happened with the telephone it <laughs> happened with with novels every time there's a new technology uh, we have this techno fear as this knee jerk reaction uh, that says, "You see, it's the technology's fault." And, and really, uh, you know, this technology is a tool that can, of course, tools can be misused. Uh, and I think that's what's going on here with a woman who thinks it's a good idea to go 107 miles per hour while on her phone. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I would, I mean, I'm not a legal scholar, but I, I, you know, this lawsuit sounds pretty, pretty ridiculous. But what I do think we do have a moral obligation to do something about. Um, is not the vast majority of people who can put this stuff away, and you know maybe at times they go overboard, but you know most of us can self-regulate. The, the 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 there is one area of people that I think we do have to do something, and I want to pressure the tech industry to to do more, which is people who are actually addicted. That we have to remember, addiction is nothing new, right? Addiction has been around for a very very long time, and there's always an underlying psychosis around addiction, right? These are folks that are have something else going in their lives. And like all drugs, they're using these products as a disassociative tool. They're using a product to get out of an uncomfortable reality. I mean, that's, that's the nature of these addictions. Addictions don't come from, from anywhere. In fact, if you shot heroin, uh, if you are not looking for escape, you're probably going to get sick. Dan Rather actually did this experiment back in the 1960s. He literally <laughs> shot himself up with, with heroin. <laughs> And he puked, and he didn't feel good, and he never did it again. In fact, millions of Americans uh, have diazomorphine uh, plugged into them when they get, you know, when they break their arm or something bad happens. Doesn't mean they get addicted to it. The few that do get addicted have some kind of other problems going on, some other some other issues, and that's what happens with technology tools. The good news is that for the first time, the upside of all this data being collected on us is that for the first time we could do something about it. And that's what that's what keeps me up at night. That you know, if you make if you distill alcohol, that's that's a potentially addictive product. We all know about how terrible alcoholism is, but you can have this moral cover of saying, "Well, we don't know who the alcoholics are. How do we know who's abusing our product?" Mm. But these companies, like Clash of Clans and like Zynga and these makers, and, and frankly, every Las Vegas casino that uses a loyalty card, they know how much each and every person is gambling, is using their products. So for those people who are just way off the charts, right, what, what the industry calls whales, we could do something, and I think we have a moral imperative to do something about people who we know are unhealthfully addicted. Not in terms of money, right? If, you, if you're somebody who's crazy rich and that's how you choose to spend your money, I'm not gonna get in your way. But if we know that you're spending just an inordinate amount of time on a product or service, you know, give me some number. What's what's a number that just doesn't make sense? Forty hours a week, fifty hours, sixty hours a week. There's got to be some number that says, hey, you know what, Facebook, you should step in to someone who's using the product that much and see if they need help. And, and I want the industry to do that. I've written about this for a few years now. I want people to adopt what I call a use and abuse policy that says there's some number at which point we step in and help you. 
uh, because what you're doing here cannot be healthy. Let us see if you need help. Just just do it. You could just use like like two or three standard deviations. Right. The top. Right. Boom. In done. fact, Stack Overflow already does this. On Stack Overflow, if you use Stack Overflow more than 20 hours a week, you get a message and you cannot accrue any more points on Stack Overflow. Why? Because what Jeff Atwood told me, one of the co-founders of Stack Overflow, that he wanted Stack Overflow to be a place that improves your life but doesn't become your life. And so I think more companies should do exactly that. Wow. How is anybody doing it besides Stack No. <laughs> no, nobody's doing it right now. And I'm trying to figure out how do we create a movement to to pressure folks into doing this uh, without without being you know techno alarmists and saying all tech is bad. Uh, it's just this one criteria of people who really can't control their behavior and need some help. So how would you do that? What what would you? I mean, you you said how Stack Over. I mean, what would you? What would Facebook do? I, what well, would Snapchat? Oh, do? I can give you a perfect example. So there's a bunch of ways. <clears throat> Way one, of course, is you just send a message. Hey, how's it going? You know, that's that's maybe the more uh, social how, social awkward We're conversation about you yeah that's, that's a little socially awkward but let me give you an example <laughs> for facebook okay yeah i use an android phone i have facebook every morning i get updates that say 14 people have uploaded a picture and or do you know this person and i have looked through the facebook app four or five times to turn these notifications off and i cannot find where to do so hmm. but there there's a simple there's a simple point where for you know Facebook automatically generates everything and it's automatic for every user if you reach a certain level they could just slowly and unobtrusively scale back the level of notifications and scale back the level of updates that your feed receives it could be completely yeah. behind the scenes and the right. net effect would be it, it would just become less interesting and you would force the person to back off right right so if they just said, if they did say hey look you know we see that you're using the product uh in the amount that 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 has raised some red flags, here's some ways to decrease your usage. Let's make it easier for you to dial back in some way or another. I think that it would actually make Facebook better. You know, we all know the person who's on Facebook way too much and pollutes our <laughs> news feeds with all the crap they keep posting and sharing. I think it would actually make the product better. I'm not really worried about Facebook doing this. I think if yeah. we can get the attention of someone high enough up at, at, at Facebook with a little bit of public pressure around helping folks uh, disconnect a little bit more, I think this would happen. What, I, what I'm really interested to see is what happens to the companies where unhooking the addicts is an existential threat to the business, right? What happens when the gaming companies that rely on not you know, the few people who occasionally play, right. but the very small minority of people, the one or 2% who are playing all the time, <laughs> and, but are providing about 99% of the revenue? Right. That's going to be interesting. What do those companies do that rely upon not just casual users but addicts? So I have a follow-up question for you, um, and it's it's a it's a gaming question. Um, so uh, microtransactions, the future mm -hmm. of video games or a blight on society? S sorry, say that one more time. <laughs> do, microtransactions yeah, are they the yeah. future of video minute, games or a blight Jeffrey, on society? What is a microtransaction? Oh, sorry. Okay, so um, so there are. Uh, the traditional way that people play games, think of mm -hmm. checkers. Mm -hmm. You purchase a, a physical checkers box or a chess set at a store. You purchase it once, the game is yours for unlimited plays and for the end of time. Mm -hmm. So the recent trend that's been happening, especially with apps, is instead of making one payment, buying the game straight out, um, people have experimented, of course, like World of Warcraft does a, it's a subscription-based service. Right, mm -hmm. so you pay a couple, you know, twenty bucks a month or whatever it is, to 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 have to have access to it. Okay, that's one model, but the new model is what's called microtransactions. So the way that works is generally, if it's like an app, um, every the game is free, but then if you actually want to play the game successfully or cheat up a couple points or a couple levels or get an extra something, uh, and in some cases, in order to really actually compete in the game at all. Um, you have to make small little transactions over an extended period of time. Right, right. So the whole freemium model. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think these Those things are, are bad. Uh, I, I, I think what they've done is you know, they've moved the ability curve. They made it easier for you to 
pay and of course they've used all kinds of interesting psychological hacks like loss aversion that if you know if you if you don't pay now your crops are going to die or whatever it is and so they they use all, a lot of these techniques and i don't think any any of these things are bad i think in fact they you know they make the games engaging they make the games fun and of course we don't want it any other way right like it's it's ridiculous to expect these games to you know to, to make your games worse make your products harder to use uh so that they're not as not as fun you know that's that's not going to happen and for most people, this isn't a problem. I mean, I really, you know, persuasion, everything that, that I write about uh, when it comes to persuasive design uh, and habit formation, this is an, an art on the, on the margin, right? This is never going to make someone do something they don't want to do. Persuasion is not coercion. Coercion is when you get people to do things they don't want to do. And frankly, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and it would be unethical to do so. Uh, w w all of this stuff is helping people do things they want to do, but for lack of good design, don't do. Uh, so that's that's really where where a lot of this stuff sits. However, if you're the kind of person who's just going overboard, right? If you really have a, an addiction, or where you are using the product to an extent uh, that is unhealthy, and we should be able to see that based on your usage patterns, in those cases, I do think, as I mentioned before, we do have an obligation. And and to put it in perspective too, I think you know as much as I think the gaming companies do some some pretty sketchy things, you know, if you call a gaming company. I'm sorry, if you call Apple or Google, right, which all these, these gaming companies are built on these days, the vast mm -hmm. majority are occurring on, on, on one of these two platforms. If you call Apple or Google and say, hey, look, you know, I played Clash of Clans and those bastards addicted me. I want my money back. They give you your money back, right? There's Even no for microtransactions? Back. Of course. They give it all back. Oh, they, wow. will, they will charge back your card. The game makers hate that. They don't want me to tell you that. Mm -hmm. But they will, with, with very little argument, they have to. Uh, give you your money back because you know Apple is not going to risk their reputation for the sake of Clash of Clans. They don't care enough about Clash of Clans to risk their reputation on that. Now, that to me doesn't bother me so much because the money you get back. What bothers me more is that the time yeah. that you put into the app, you never get back. And so, uh, you know, unlike in Las Vegas, where if you lose your money in a slot machine, that money's gone. You're not getting it back. Uh, well, that's that's a different different line uh, that than these app makers cross, where really what they're taking from people is their time. So I I think um, I, I have some ideas of how to move this forward. First of all, uh, Guthrie and I we were just over in uh, Stockholm, Sweden recently, and we met a woman there who is pretty high up in Facebook. Hmm. Right, Guthrie. Yes. Maybe, we, maybe we can contact her. Now, she's on the business side, not on the consumer side, but she would know who we could talk to. Yeah, but let's the do other, it. other thing I was thinking, yeah, so let's do that. But then I was thinking we we need to give it a, it needs to be a thing. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, like the, um, well, see, this is a generational thing because the, you know, the, the phrase that I would use would be, uh, the good housekeeping seal of approval, but you mm. guys might be too I young. No to idea what you're talking. About. <laughs> See? See? No, I, so uh, it's it's interesting. So Tristan Harris, uh, at time well spent, is working on on something like this, some kind of seal, like organic, or you know that this app is a time well spent app. Ah, uh, yeah. Or yeah. this, okay. or this, this company is a uh, you know. So so is if you're yeah. yeah, if you're a company that has implemented the. Um, um, you know, the use uh, and abuse. Yeah. 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 Uh, pro, uh, guidelines, mm -hmm. right. Then you get this, you know, you're certified as the, you know, use and abuse, whatever. So, mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of, um, it's like a good citizen, right. You know, at, and Guthrie, the good housekeeping seal of approval. This is show I'm showing my age. I understand that. That's okay. I'm proud of my years of wisdom. Um, the good, good housekeeping was an organization and they had, uh, and they still have, I think, uh, a magazine, good housekeeping magazine. And so if a product was very good and had gone through, you know, testing kind of in the, it's like a, you know, they got a seal of approval. You would get a seal of approval. Okay. So if you had a, 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 a kitchen appliance, you know, that was reliable and worked well, it would have the good housekeeping seal of approval. And that, that term became used for anything like this, where you're just saying, okay, these, this company is a good citizen, mm -hmm. um, or good to consumers. So yeah, Nir, I think we should, I think we should uh, work on this. Yeah, I would love to see that happen. It's very All right, interesting. So, 
We've launched it on our <laughs> podcast. What are we going to call it? I don't, I don't know. know. We'll figure. We'll figure something out. I, you uh, know, I think that the well, Tristan. We should definitely work with Tristan at, at, yeah. at yeah. time well spent around how to how to construct the the seal. I, yeah. I think that's that's you know that that to me is a little bit more troublesome, frankly. I mean, I don't have any problem with the seal. Why not? Um, I guess I don't see it as big of a problem. Like I don't, I don't think that these apps are so bad that they're melting our brains for normal people. Right? Uh, are not are, they? They just stop using them, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, kind of like you did, Guthrie. Where if the app was just using too much of your time, you you scale back. What I want to see is really this 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 one moral area that I don't think is gray. I think it's black and white. Uh, particularly with addicts, with people who we have the data, we know who the addicts are, and we don't do anything for them. To me, I think that's that's something that needs more than a seal. I think it needs an industry agreement or maybe even regulation. At yeah, some no, point. no, I agree with you. No, I I agree. I'm I. That's what I meant, though. What mm-hmm. I meant was that that. Uh, but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna push for the regulation, you have to first um, let the industry fix it or try to fix it. No, I wasn't even gonna say that. But mm-hmm. just just. Uh, You've got to give them some ideas about right. what you mean and how to do it. Yeah, know? yeah, I love it. Let, you know, if we could get a few companies, if we could get uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram uh, to to put, you know, we, we could do a two for one there with Insta with uh, Facebook now that they own Instagram uh, to help us with this and sign up uh, to. Okay, to agree so we we uh, we're putting this out there. So if, for those of you who are listening, if any of you are from these companies. Mm-hmm. And are interested in uh, in some ideas about this? You know, you can contact us, and we'll uh, we'll get near involved. Yeah, just just email info at the teamw.com. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have two thoughts. It's first of all, it's so so near near. You're you're in San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. And I I completely because uh, we're out in the Midwest, and I completely um, forget how. Uh, how basically the tech industry thinks it's really doing good on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to all the companies, like we're, you know, we're here to make the world a better place. And uh, if, if any of you have seen Silicon Valley, there's quite a wonderful parody uh, about that, that whole um, thing. Um, the, in, to the people I talk to, um, they have a much more sinister view of these, of, of these tech companies mm-hmm. um, that they really, really just, don't care about their users whatsoever. Mm. Um, they're just trying just to make, make money. money. Um, so uh, the example I'll give. Um, there's so there's video games that come out, and the video games they're multiplayer, right? Mm-hmm. So you're playing against other people, and they look super. It looks super super cool, um, and so they get all these people in, uh, and and sometimes the game even costs money to purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these people they buy the game, they're playing it. It's a lot of fun. And then what these companies start doing is to the users, it feels like they're holding them for ransom. Um, or I guess it's either that or a bait and switch, where then they introduce microtransactions. So mm-hmm. if you pay extra, you can get you know special bullets that do more damage. And right. so the net effect is that the people who pay get to win every time. And if you don't pay, then you basically lose. And so these people, they've put in all this time and sometimes even money, and they feel that their time and money now is being held kind of at ransom, mm. where either just forfeit all the investment you put into this game, and just walk away, um, and thanks for your business, or you have to, or you have to pay in order to to do a decent job. Right. So um, that's that's like situations like that, um, right. or or companies that make the vast majority of their income on a very, very small subset of users. Right. Well, again, you know, I, I think that uh, there's no doubt these firms are profit maximizers. That's that's what they're set up to do. Um, but, but yeah, Facebook, prove, prove us wrong. <laughs> well, I, 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 again, I think the, the, the question is, is this a solution that the market figures out on its own? Like the fact that you and hundreds, if not thousands or hundreds of thousands of people have mm. this complaint about the game, 
you know, in the age we live in, that complaint is everywhere instantaneously, right? It's all yeah. over the forums. It's people bitching about it everywhere. And yeah. that's great, right? That's the free market working out shysters, right? If you think about dark patterns, there's a great website called darkpatterns.org that talks about all these techniques like bait and switch and roach motel, all these things that companies have done. The interesting thing is when you look at the, the, the dark patterns that companies uh, partake in, Almost all of them, without exception, either the technique is no longer used or the company's out of business. Yeah, Why still is making that? Money. Why is that? Somehow. Because consumers complain and they yeah. stop buying those products. And so that's how I think these things typically get worked out. It's just bad business mm. to trick your customers and make them feel like they're, they're being coerced into something. People say, no, I'm not going to put up with that, and they stop buying your product. Uh, and so by and large, that's what happens, except for these areas, I think that, that the consumer is really and truly no longer in control, uh, as in the case of you know, fraud or in addiction. Hmm. Cool. Hey, uh, Nir. Yeah. I was right. We could have gone on for hours. Uh, we <laughs> didn't even right. get to all the cool uh, psychology stuff, so we may have to have you back on. But we have an amazing uh, charge here to, to, to try and implement I've, these use and abuse policies. Yes. That's, even, that's even better. <laughs> that's really, really exciting. So yeah, that's we'll new. Just, we're going to see if that we can get that to go somewhere. Yeah, and, that'd be awesome. And you guys heard it first. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, Nir, is there anything you want to plug? Yeah. Um, Where should people go to find out about you or get in touch with you? or besides yeah, buying, thank you. Besides buying the book, Hooked. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, so the, the book is hooked, and uh, the website uh, where I blog is at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R, so nearandfar.com. Uh, and again, for those listening, you can check uh, um, all of our stuff at theteamw.com. This this podcast will be everywhere, so you can download it. We've thrown all this social media stuff. Again, if you have any, um, if, you, if you are uh, Sergey Brin, and you are listening and would like to get personally in touch with us, you can email us at info at theteamw.com. Um, and I think, uh, I think that'll wrap it up. Nir, thanks so much for being on. And hopefully we can have you back. Absolutely. It was fun. Susan, thanks so much. Yeah. And to all those listening, uh, I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.